I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Um, Charles said he wanted to speak first, so I will just say one thing before he gets to do that, which is two things, actually. One, uh, it's a pleasure to be at the center of what for me is the literary universe, which is this bookstore and uh, the sponsorship of the LRB. And the other is that it is really a pleasure for me to uh, be talking tonight with Charles, who represents me not just the best in scholarship, but somebody who writes so unbelievably well that it is a constant source of pressure for me. So <laughs> I got both of those out of the way, and I will let Charles speak. Well, <clears throat> one always likes to put one's fellow writers under pressure, so I'm glad to hear Jim, Jim saying that. Um, and I wanted to start off by saying it's really Jim's show because he's got this wonderful new book out. And I, I wanted to kick off by saying, first of all, that I'm very glad to be here because I think it must be nearly five years ago now, we, we tried to do this. And I got stuck in Italy because of the ash cloud, if you remember the ash cloud. That was one of the minor uh, disasters that it caused. Um, so finally, we have made it uh, together to the London Review bookshop at the same time. Um, I'd also like to say, um, well, we've set aside about half an hour for mutual congratulations, so uh, <laughs> I'd like to say what a wonderful inspiration Jim's books have been to me. Um, 1599, of course, the book perhaps he's best, uh, best known for and associated with, uh, came out almost exactly 10 years ago. Uh, he's been a little slower than Shakespeare, who only took seven years to get to 1606 from 1599. Um, but, um, I think one could, one could definitely call it a groundbreaking or, or certainly a mood-changing book, um, placing Shakespeare in both a very close chronological focus and um, placing him wonderfully within his context. Um, and already context sounds a bit sort of dry and sociological for the kind of book that Jim wrote. Um, perhaps one should say placing Shakespeare in his habitat uh, or his, his, his cultural and physical landscape. Um, and um, not doing so by any uh, rather sort of uh, uh, slightly uh, phony or picturesque, rumbustuous, 
gadzookery, sort of Elizabethan Merry England way, uh, but with a very subtle and deft and uh, very sort of uh, difficult um, manipulation, as it were, of various strands of evidence and types of context. Uh, so we don't just get the political and the topical, which Shakespeare is reflecting in his plays of that year, but also uh, what he's reading, uh, what's going on in the playhouse, his own personnel, his own company, the changes of personnel that create changes of dramatic emphasis within the plays he's writing, particularly thinking about the comedians who have a big changeover in 1599, the comedians that Shakespeare works with, and uh, all sorts of little bits and pieces, as it were, which make up a very fine, not, not, not a great sort of uh, rumbustuous tapestry, uh, but a very finely woven, uh, well, a sort of arras, perhaps, of the kind that Polonius hid <laughs> behind so fatally uh, in Hamlet, which, of course, was one of the plays that Shakespeare was at work on in 1599. And Jim, bouncing off John Madden's great but wonderfully lightweight film, Shakespeare in Love, said it was a book about Shakespeare at work. Um, I then came out with The Lodger a little bit later, which I said was about Shakespeare in digs. So, <laughs> so, so between us, we've, we've sort of covered the waterfront. Um, and I'd like to sort of kick back to, to Jim right now and, and say we've moved on seven years from 1599, which was full of optimism and creative energy, Shakespeare's uh, optimism and creative energy, risks taken and wonderful achievements made as a result. And say we arrive at 1606, we've left the Elizabethan era, we've joined, we've, we've entered the Jacobean era. What sort of changes of mood and changes of emphasis and changes in William Shakespeare does Jim think he's fixing on now? I, I should say at the outset that for the first quarter century of my writing and teaching career, I simply thought of Shakespeare as an Elizabethan. And uh, in the States, we divvy up Shakespeare's early and late career <clears throat> right around Hamlet. Nobody wants to give up Hamlet, so Hamlet ends the fall semester and begins the spring semester. <clears throat> but I always took the fall semester, or almost always did, and I let my colleagues fight like sharks over the second half of Shakespeare's career. And when I finished 1599, uh, I was invited to do a documentary for BBC Four uh, on Shakespeare and King James. And I realized I knew nothing about the Jacobean period, and really what Shakespeare was up to. I hadn't been teaching these plays, immersing myself in them. And I realized that Shakespeare was also a Jacobean writer, but the Jacobean writer was quite different than the Elizabethan writer. And I set myself the task of trying to learn what that meant. And the first thing that it meant was I'd no longer be writing about the Tudors which from a commercial standpoint is a disaster. Uh, and uh, I had to really grapple with uh, the enigmatic James, who is difficult to pin down. In a way, I had to push away my feelings of uh, competition with James. He was the best-selling author of his day in many respects, for all the wrong reasons, of course, as all best-selling authors are. Um, and he thought himself, I'm sure, the, the greatest uh, intellect and writer of his times. And he was not a successful monarch. 
And it's very difficult to go from as successful a monarch as Elizabeth to uh, one who struggled to understand just how much he misunderstood the English when he came down from Scotland in 1603. So for me, the, the greatest challenge is really not, e not even understanding what Shakespeare was doing, but understanding what Shakespeare must have felt a month after James uh, succeeds Elizabeth and announces that Shakespeare and his fellow players are now king's men, issuing four and a half yards of red cloth to them. Uh, Shakespeare is now groom of the chamber, and he finds himself in, in, in a radically different writing environment, uh, where under Elizabeth he might have to show up at court two or three times a year. James is calling for the king's men to perform nine or ten times a year. So just the definition of what his career was and his obligations were changes. And, and it really took me a while to uh, shed my Elizabethan assumptions and start building from the ground up Jacobean ones. Well, that's I, 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 I like you, find the Jacobean um, atmosphere fascinating not least because it is more elusive and less uh, well packaged, shall we say, than the Elizabethan mm. Tudor. Um, there's a couple of little sidelights on that, um, uh, on that um, movement of Shakespeare into a much more uh, elevated status by being the king's man in that uh, coronation procession where he was indeed one of the grooms of the chamber uh, 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 wearing his lengths of scarlet cloth in the coronation procession. But in the document that describes it, uh, uh, he, where he is a, a groom of the chamber, but he, uh, he groom of the chamber, but he and his fellow players are in a subgroup which is headed falconers, etc. <laughs> which I think is a rather marvellous um, reminder of the uh, ambiguous status of the playwright uh, and the players at that time, even though these were royal servants by virtue of becoming the king's men. Um, Shakespeare's desire to um, refashion the relationship perhaps between um, him as the writer and the king as his patron also uh, again takes a, a, a kind of blow to his esteem I think perhaps with the curious incident little known about it of the tragedy of Gowrie. Perhaps you'd like to say something about sure. that Jim, because I know you uh, it. The tragedy of Gowrie was a play staged in uh, late 1604 and uh, 18 months before the events with which I begin this book, we know only from one letter that it was performed twice at the Globe, and it told the story of an assassination attempt on King James, and that had taken place uh, uh, in Scotland uh, a couple of years earlier, and it attracted enormous crowds, and it was immediately stopped, and no surviving trace of the work uh, remains today. So you would think that Shakespeare would have been warned against writing a play about the assassination of a Scottish king. <laughs> and it's, it's really a, a terrific story. The only version of this event to survive was the official version, uh, essentially authorized by King James. And it's, it's a wild story. It should be a film in which uh, James is out riding, hunting, out riding and hunting with his entourage. Somebody comes up, and I'm giving a, a slightly reductive version of this, and said, 
we found a pot of gold. You know, we found gold. Come ride with us to this castle, and we'll show it to you. And James arrives with his entourage at the castle, and he goes up several stairs and locked doors until he's in a, a private room when all of a sudden he's attacked. And he is locked into hand-to-hand -hand combat with his attacker who either wants to kidnap him or kill him, but it's unclear what. And each one has a, a hand in the other's mouth and a hand on a hilt, and they're doing this complicated dance. And James ends up by a window where he calls out to his men to rescue him. And, they kill everybody, and only James survives to tell the story. And it could have been an assignation gone bad. It, it could have been James owed this family money and wanted to eliminate them. It could have been a million things, but whatever it was, uh, the Kirk didn't buy this story. And there were preachers in Scotland who just said, I, I can't accept this story. And, and uh, the problem was when James came down to England, he wanted everybody to celebrate Gowrie Day. He wanted Lancelot Andrews to write Gowrie's sermons. And Andrews reportedly went on his knees begging James, you know, is this true? Because no one believed it. And James reassured his chief sermon deliverer that it was. But the whole problem of King James is in a sense encapsulated in this. For Shakespeare, do you write a play like Macbeth, is it does it step over the line? Will it be as popular as Gowrie but not as dangerous? So those issues, in a sense, are circulating by 1606. Well, it's very interesting, isn't it, that uh, a play was not considered by King James to be a suitable uh, propagandist uh, um, uh, tool, a propagandist medium. He obviously feels that the playhouse is somewhat um, difficult to control, and that's uh, been a, 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 that is a feature of both late Elizabethan period and of the early Jacobean period. Uh, the authorities very adept at uh, completely expunging a play from the record. There's a play called The Isle of Dogs in 1597, written by Thomas Nash and Ben Jonson. Uh, stung someone very sharply, trod on someone's toes very hard, and was hauled off the stage, actors thrown in prison, Thomas Nash in flight heads off to Great Yarmouth back in East Anglia where he was born and basically never really allowed uh, back into print and dies a couple of years later. And no trace of that play remains, even though it was a cause celebre and uh, a topical comedy. Um, we talk about satire nowadays. Uh, some people have a rather short-sighted view that satire uh, was sort of invented in about 1963, uh, <laughs> along with sex, according to Philip Larkin, uh, with that was the week that was. Um, the satirists of the 1590s uh, wrote uh, under the shadow of all sorts of uh, unpleasant and harsh punishments, of which imprisonment was about the least. Uh, even in 1605, just before we enter um, Jim's patch, um, <coughs> Ben Johnson and two colleagues, George Chapman and John Marston, wrote a play called Eastward Ho, in which contained uh, a, a single line, as far as we're aware, this is what the problem really was with Eastward Ho, in which... Um, a, a character says in a rather notable Scottish accent, I ken the man will, he's one of my 40 pound knights, which was uh, interpreted no doubt correctly as a hit at King James's indiscriminate sale of knighthoods. Uh, again, the writers are hauled off to prison and uh, to quote a, 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 a contemporary document, the report was that they should have their noses slit and their ears. So, um, 
They didn't, as it turns out, although Johnson was no stranger to prison. So um, that brings into focus, I think, the kind of edge work that's involved with these writers. And so Shakespeare negotiating his new position as the king's playwright. Tragedy of Gowrie suggests, not that we know that Shakespeare himself wrote it, it was a King's Men production, suggests the difficult terrain that he's trying to stake yeah. out. And I, and I think the rules had changed. The rules that everybody had come to, in a sense, agree upon under Elizabeth was such that when Nash and Johnson went way overboard, everybody knew it, and probably the other theater companies resented the threat it meant for their livelihood. Under James, nobody really understood what was going too far. And I think it must have been much more difficult to write topical or political drama when you could not see the signposts and couldn't really easily identify what would get you in trouble or not. And uh, people ask me what, what Shakespeare's greatest accomplishment might have been or accomplishments. And for me, uh, there are always two. Uh, one is that he never ended up in jail or in prison uh, for what he wrote, given how closely he skirts to uh, over uh, criticism of, of, of his monarchs. And the other is that he continued to write without the benefit of caffeine, uh, which <laughs> since neither key, tea nor coffee had yet been introduced, yeah. that probably still ranks as number one. Uh, yeah. And... Uh, <laughs> is extraordinary. Yeah, there's a wonderful little snatch of John Aubrey uh, researching the life of Shakespeare where he said he, w he wouldn't be debauched. He wasn't a company keeper and wouldn't be debauched. And if invited to be debauched, writ he was in pain. So his excuse was, oh, I can't come out tonight, I've got a toothache. And of course he's actually, what he's doing is he, he's working. See, when, when I, 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 I bought that line, uh, that interpretation of Shakespeare as somebody who turned down those invitations. And one of the things that happened between selling that version of Shakespeare as a antisocial kind of writer, uh, and it went along with the fact that he never wrote dedicatory uh, poems for anybody else's plays, essentially never blurbed when asked. Uh, and right before I finished 1606, there was that discovery in uh, Edinburgh, I guess. Do you want to talk about that? Uh, well, I was going to take you up on that, actually, Jim. Because um, this is completely, <laughs> I've shifted ground completely yeah. on uh, Shakespeare as social creature. Well, I mean, I, I, I was a little uncertain about this, to be honest. Um, very few pages of Jim Shapiro's books, which I'm feeling a little uncertain about. But that was one of them, because you're a little hard on John Aubrey, a great, um, uh, as many of you will know, a great uh, retailer of anecdote, gossip, um, irresistible but unverifiable anecdotes, um, writing I'll, a generation or so after the death of Shakespeare. I'll, I'll qualify it here. I'll, I'll, you can write this in the margin of your copy of 1606. <laughs> Not as a rata, but as a qualification. Here's what we're talking about. Uh, last year, an American scholar up in Edinburgh discovered a sheaf of papers describing Southwark in the 1640s. Somebody went around from building to building, and one of the buildings they visited was the Tabard Inn, celebrated by Chaucer and still famous in the uh, uh, late 16th and early 17th centuries, and uh, describes how Shakespeare, Johnson, uh, uh, Burbage, and the rest of their roistering uh, Jacobean uh, 
crowd cut or carved their name in the, in the wood paneling of the Tabard Inn. So the best I can say is not that I'm anti-Aubrey, but <laughs> Aubrey asked people in Stratford-upon-Avon whether Shakespeare would enjoy going out. And it's pretty clear to me that when Shakespeare's neighbors up there said, do you want to go out? No, I'm in pain. <laughs> and I have felt that many a time in Stratford-upon-Avon. It's a completely different story in London when you're out with your fellow actors and writers and drunk enough to start carving your name or whatever else. I just wondered, Jim, really, uh, it's an interesting, what, what, the, the will of the wisps and the temptations, isn't it? Um, why you put as more credence on that anonymous uh, tourist of 1640 saying, oh, yes, the Tabard Inn's got all these wonderful graffiti in the panelling. Uh, with no real corroboration, uh, no, and then, but, but, um, but we're yeah. rather hard on John Aubrey, who uh, uh, you and many others are. I, 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 I think Aubrey was just speaking to a... people in Stratford, you see. Well, I think he was talking to William Beeston, who was, yeah. a, who was a Shoreditch man. So anyway, we're about to get onto the subject of Jane Davenant. We won't do that I, No, no, we will, we will. Um, <laughs> we won't do that yet, because there are other... Um, good. But it's, it's really, the room is divided like a Jewish, uh, Orthodox Jewish wedding. Uh, you know, there are those who rightly feel that uh, Aubrey, uh, who was a terrific biographer, hunted down the best sources, should be given more credence than uh, somebody retailing anecdotes from uh, what was carved on the wall, or still remained on the wall, almost surely in the 1630s uh, and 40s. But it then becomes the chicken and egg question of what Shakespeare do you imagine based on whatever flimsy evidence there is, and then what kind of Shakespeare you construct. And the Jacobean Shakespeare left precious few traces. So I clung to this probably more dearly than Charles would have, uh, because when he wrote The Lodger, he had a mine of information about the Jacobean Shakespeare, uh, the greatest body of evidence about him. Otherwise, it's fairly thin. It is indeed, and as you say, every era, let alone every writer, um, has its own Shakespeare. And the one we try to, what one tries to navigate between those various versions of Shakespeare, sticking as much as possible to the evidence, but the evidence is so thin. And, and of course, this introduces the whole question about sort of narrative history and narrative biography, which I think both Jim and I sort of uh, are, are to some extent in the business of trying to place, um, if I may very bad manners to quote yourself from the back of Jim's book, but I said of his early, one of his earlier books, um, that uh, he, he never forgets that the telling, uh, that, that uh, despite all the complexities and quiddities of the material, the writing of history is essentially the telling of a story. And that's why his books are so wonderful to read. Uh, but there's always that um, difficulty of dealing with the ambiguities and uncertainties of the evidence. And uh, a story requires that you move from one uh, episode to another without spending a whole lot of time 
asking yourself and the reader whether it's true that this ever happened. I think it was Michael Dobson who said in a review of a, uh, of a biography of Shakespeare, possibly Park Honan's, uh, referring to the uh, very, very cloudy circumstances of Shakespeare in the 1580s uh, before he became a, a London-based playwright. Um, it's very difficult to imagine a story, a biography, a life in which Shakespeare is simultaneously is and is not uh, a clandestine Catholic in a, in a household in Lancashire, which is one of the theories about what he, what he was up to in the 1580s. But it's a theory. And to create a narrative, you have to really make a prior decision, or you have to, um, the reader has to trust your decisions, which might not be uh, advertised in the text itself, as to which, uh, which episode you're going with and which ones you're, you're um, ignoring. You're select very selective. So I think um, what I, I, I've always liked so much about Jim's books is that they read like a story, yet behind that, uh, uh, that I can see, uh, partly because I know some of the material, and partly because it's a, a lot of stuff in the back of the book, um, uh, that there's a hundred and a thousand and one decisions goes in to each sort of chapter as to what's, uh, what constitutes a small part of the mosaic of that, uh, of that sort of episode or event. And, and I would only add to that uh, this one moment in the book where I made the same difficult decision that Charles made, that whatever I thought without the evidence, I would never make that claim. And that has to do with Shakespeare's relationship with his landlady <laughs> on Silver and Muggle Street, uh, Marie Montjoy. And we've met in, in, in person, we've corresponded, but we've only met once before this evening. And we had a terrific dinner uh, after a panel where we and Andrew Hatfield of, of Sussex were speaking about biography. And the subject turned to Mrs. Montjoy, who you, in a sense, have thought about harder in any sense than anybody else and if I'm not misremembering the conversation uh, you felt uh, there was a, a likelihood that Shakespeare was romantically engaged with Mrs. Montjoy and uh, chose not to say that in the lodger and I felt by the time I finished 1606 that it was likely as well and I chose not to include that and they're just things you feel from reading the evidence. Uh, you very delicately uh, made a brief allusion to the fact that he wrote, uh, was at work on Antony and Cleopatra around the time that Marie Mountjoy died. A very sparky French lady, uh, for those who uh, don't know the story of Shakespeare uh, and his uh, lodgings in, in Cripplegate, as emerges from a lawsuit which he gave evidence in some years later. Um, a, a French immigrant family, the Mountjoys, uh, they were tire makers. Um, doesn't mean they're members of the Jacobean motor trade, but they, they, they made ornamental headgear or head tires, uh, very fashionable stuff. And indeed, the, um, the mask which Jim opens 1606 with, the performance of Hymenii, if I'm pronouncing it right, uh, a glittering court mask, might well have featured some, some head tires and glittery spangly creations uh, by the Mountjoys because they appear in the uh, accounts of Queen Anne, James's wife. Um, 
So Shakespeare's there, and uh, w one looks into the Mountjoys and finds they are uh, a rather rackety sort of family. There's uh, a bit of adultery here, and Christopher Mountjoy is hauled up before the elders of the French church for his paillardise and adultère. Uh, paillardise meaning sort of whoring. Um, cognate with a word for straw mattress. I'm not quite sure how it works, but uh, <laughs> basically means bad, bad behavior. And she's going to summon foreman about a pregnancy. A pregnancy, and, and there's Henry Wood the Mercer around the corner. If you can finally penetrate after several weeks Simon Foreman's handwriting in his <laughs> case books, the uh, mentions Henry, Henry Wood in Mercer, Henry Wood the Mercer. Um, so um, there's all sorts of propitious circumstances which might say that uh, Marie Mountjoy was a rather sparky French woman. Uh, Shakespeare's known or uh, uh, deduced predilection for dark uh, continental Latin type. Whoops, my glasses are falling off in the excitement. Um, <laughs> that there was and a, she a, and she, of course, opportuned him at a certain point. A very strong solicited and entreated him. Solicited and entreated him uh, on her daughter's behalf, but. Those are strong terms, As you and out, yeah. we know more about what words were or uh, what conversation took place between Mrs. Montjoy and Shakespeare than we do of any conversation between Anne Hathaway and Shakespeare. Indeed, and um, so I mean, she's an example of someone. You know, you you have these feelings about about the relationship, but there's no evidence, and I, I sort of say, you know, whatever there was between them remains their secret. Uh, there might have been nothing. She was. She's generally referred to, or, 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 or you know, Mrs. Mountjoy, Shakespeare's landlady, with the slightly sort of comic overtones of landlady. Uh, for a start, she's much younger than is generally supposed in that phrase. Um, she was just three years younger than Shakespeare, so yeah. they were almost age mates. Yes. Well, in her first visit to Simon Foreman, she said she was 30 years old. In her second visit, which was a few months later, she said she was 29. I'm not <laughs> quite sure how that worked, but, <laughs> but um, anyway, she's a very attractive and sparky lady. Um, Jim and I like a couple of aged suitors for <laughs> fighting for well, her. You know, the whole <laughs> question of uh, Shakespeare's sexuality is uh, a minefield for scholars. And I avoided it in 1599 by simply saying, when Shakespeare was rehearsing every morning, having uh, a meal with his fellow players, and then performing from two to five, and then when they went off to do what actors have done from time immemorial, drinking, carousing, he had to read and write late into the night. So he had no time for sex, basically, was <laughs> the argument of 1599. And Shakespeare is acting less at this point. And the, the stories, of course, accumulate. And one of the things that, uh, if Charles had written this book rather than I, or if he goes on to write a book about this period in Shakespeare's life, I'm sure he'll explore one of the relationships that I studiously avoided, which is uh, the claim by William Davenant that uh, Davenant was Shakespeare's bastard offspring. And if you count... Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Back to when Davenant was born, you will see that he was born in 1606, and the story circulated some decades after Shakespeare's death that Shakespeare had carried on an affair with... You take it from here. Uh, Jane, or Janet, as she's called, or Jeanette Davenant, who was the wife of a vintner, uh, John Davenant. Uh, and they were um, obviously involved in the... Well, they were involved in the importation of French wines and therefore possibly had a French connection. They had a French connection back in their, uh, uh, in their family, or, although both of them were English. And uh, it's, it's a rumour that Aubrey, of course, is the... Um, first source for reporting that William Davenant, when, when Mary, uh, in his cups, uh, was contented, that he, he said he was Shakespeare's godson, and when in his cups was contented to be thought his son, by which he gave his mother a very light report, as Aubrey uh, uh, adds, and then someone crossed that out in the, in the, in the manuscript, whether Aubrey or, or someone else. So we have uh, a young man called William, born in 1606, who is said to have been a, uh, uh, the offspring of, a, uh, of an illicit affair between Shakespeare and a married lady, who by that point lived in Oxford. And as Aubrey points out, Oxford lay on the road between London and Stratford. So twice a year, Shakespeare would uh, be journeying that way and quite possibly lay, as the, uh, as the term was then, lay at the Crown Tavern in Oxford, which was the Davenant's uh, property. So the uh, circumstances... Do you, think, do you think it's true? I mean, the... <laughs> well, I think the circumstances, again, mm. are quite um, favourable, let's say. Uh, I don't really believe in a celibate Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. He spent a lot of time... Uh, he spent about 25 years living most of his life in London. Um, his wife is back home in Stratford. His property and his family are home in Stratford. Stratford was very important to him, but he lives his life in London and, well... The choices are legion, really. If we read the sonnets, you might think he's looking for rent poised <laughs> somewhere near Silver Street. Uh, if you listen to Aubrey, he's carrying on with uh, the vintner's wife. I believe there's a little hint of the affair in a play by John Marston as well, where a vintner's wife called Mrs. Mullygrub uh, is, um, has some rather interesting things to say. And Mr. Mullygrub makes a joke about genets, which also mean a certain kind of uh, young horse and would seem to possibly refer to Janet Davenant, and that's in 1604 he's writing, so long before Aubrey was even born. So there's a kind of current, seems to be possibly a current uh, bit of gossip around, but I think perhaps this is um, an avenue we don't necessarily want to go down here at the moment, Jim, because... Right, only, only to introduce the very... We, I've been waiting to have this conversation, we just <laughs> had it in front of you, but I really wanted to ask Charles about what he thought of this, and... Uh, there's just a burden in writing this history about introducing your own sense of Shakespeare's sexuality. And my response to that really is, since the evidence is 
for any of our sex lives is almost, except perhaps in an age of selfies, uh, is, is almost invisible. Uh, I, I thought it best in my books to stick to Shakespeare and his writing rather than Shakespeare and his extracurricular uh, activities. And I think that's a very wise decision. Uh, and perhaps uh, one could get back a little bit to that by, by saying um, Shakespeare's response to his position as King James's playwright, apart from the uh, rebuff, as one might think of it, as the, of the uh, closing down of the tragedy of Gowrie, was to, as you, as you uh, explore uh, so interestingly, to really engage very strongly in the uh, important political debates of the day in the plays that he was writing in this year, which are just to uh, uh, give an idea of how much time he spent uh, by candlelight writing, uh, pretending to have toothache if anyone asked him to come to a party, because in this year he, he certainly seems to be finishing off uh, King Lear, which he probably begun uh, 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 sometime in the summer of 1605 when the old Chronicle play, which is, it is very strongly based on, was published, uh, although it had been played long before. Uh, he's writing, so he's writing King Lear. He also manages to get in Macbeth, and then at the end of the year, he's writing Antony and Cleopatra. So for creative sort of uh, a storm of creative labor, and there's a wonderful quote from Ben Jonson's elegy in the uh, first folio that you give, which suddenly, see, I hadn't noticed it before, suddenly talks about the, the cost that a writer um, pays, the price the writer pays for this huge creative industry, and perhaps you'll quote it for, uh, if you can remember it. But um, he is engaging in the major, in the major <laughs> political themes of the day. Because, of course, 1606, well, we all know what's just happened when 1606 dawns in the political sense. It's, um, what should we say, seven weeks after the exposure in the nick of time of the gunpowder plot, or as it's sometimes nowadays referred to as 511, uh, the great... <laughs> <laughs> The great Catholic terrorist plot uh, nipped in the bud uh, in the bowels of the Parliament building, therefore, you know, with all sorts of wonderful imagery of uh, hell, fire, and devilish conspiracy. Um, and as Jim very eloquently uh, lays out in his book, both King Lear and Macbeth are profoundly um, influenced and bear the imprint of this event and of the dreadful aftermath of uh, judicial, um, savage judicial reprisal. And, uh, you know, it, it's kind of topical, as these, play as these uh, writers so often are, to what's been going on across the channel and the possible ways in which uh, the government of that day, of that country, in this day, is going to deal with it, uh, not probably in the, quite the way that the, <laughs> the Jacobeans dealt with the conspirators of the gunpowder plot. But uh, perhaps, Jim, you know, y y y your ideas on the way the gunpowder plot and the, the Catholic threat is uh, echoed and mirrored in those great and uh, disturbing tragedies he wrote that year. It was, as I say, a, a really bad year in England, uh, and therefore a really good year for Shakespeare. And by that I mean that the pressures that had been building up, the gunpowder plot was not something that came out of the blue. It was a result of 
uh, frustration and disaffection by Catholics who thought they'd been promised more toleration than James, having arrived in England, was willing to offer. Uh, the tensions between Scottish and English, uh, which we see bubbling up in the Johnson uh, allusion to those uh, Scots buying offices, uh, claims that Scots were lice-ridden and grasping. Uh, all that is building up, and they come to a head at this time. And uh, Shakespeare was as good as anyone at uh, responding to identity crises, and King James in insisting that Scotland and England be conjoined uh, so that James himself wouldn't feel like a bigamist, as he put it to Parliament, served exactly what Shakespeare needed as he pivots and starts writing plays about Britain rather than England, or writing narrowly about Englishness and now turning towards Britishness. I'll be honest, I'm an American, I'm an outsider, and in a sense that puts me at a disadvantage trying to understand exactly what those tensions might mean. I'm Jewish rather than Catholic, and that puts me uh, at a disadvantage understanding how Catholics might have responded to uh, both the events leading up to and following from uh, the gunpowder plot. But as a New Yorker, I certainly understood very well the conflicting feelings that happen in the wake of a terrorist attack. And I think had I written this book before 9-11, uh, I would not have understood quite as deeply the turmoil that a culture goes through where you have fear and desire for revenge and confusion and competing narratives uh, circulating. We think of the gunpowder plot as a 1605 event. It's really, in fact, a 1606 event and dominated the first half of that year, really up to May and the execution of Father Garnett, uh, I think on May 3rd of that year. So it took up, uh, and if you read accounts at Christmas at the end of the year, you're still feeling the shock waves uh, of this and the effect on uh, the royal family and, and others. So. Uh, that helped carry me uh, in this book, and perhaps in 20 years, people will come back and say Shapiro misrepresented this year because he himself was too close to an event like 9-11. I don't know. You, you want to write a book like The Lodger that's going to stand up on its own right for decades and uh, not be shown to be uh, thin and, and biased, and that's, I think, one of the goals we both share. We should, we should let them Indeed. interrogate us now, now that we're talking about the interrogation of the plotters. <laughs> so. oh. If anyone wishes to interrogate. <laughs> Rack us. Uh, with uh, Macbeth and uh, King Lear, do we know what reaction that got from James or from people close to him in the court? I'll start and let Charles finish. Uh, we don't. And it's extraordinary if you read the play uh, and you wonder whether James, as was often the case, was he napping while watching Macbeth? <laughs> and did he only wake up during the show of Kings for his cameo appearance? Uh, and did he flinch while watching a play about the assassination, not just of one Scottish monarch, but by the end of the play, a second? 
And it is a mystery to me that uh, Shakespeare could, to my mind, write on such a radioactive subject as this. We have no knowledge whatsoever, unless uh, I'm mistaken, about how James responded, whether he, for all his intelligence, uh, experienced these works as celebratory, or maybe he left uh, Whitehall scratching his head a bit and then shook off that uh, unease that Shakespeare's plays must surely have caused him. Um, absolutely so. We, we, we really, I don't think, have much um, idea what the, uh, the, the, the potentates that sat in the audience thought about these plays unless they were very displeased by them. So we can probably say, uh, you know, King Lear was continued to be performed uh, and therefore wasn't, uh, like the tragedy of Dalgary, con considered to be uh, toxic. Uh, I think perhaps the thing that uh, would have shocked most people when watching King Lear, both on the public stage and the Globe, and in the, uh, what, as far as we know, the first performance in the banqueting hall uh, of Whitehall, at Whitehall, uh, before King James uh, on Boxing Day in 1606, uh, was, the, was the ending. Because the play that people had known before, the chronicle history of King Lear, L-E-I-R, which had been performed back in around 15, first performed back around 1590, and uh, probably by the Queen's men, uh, 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 had a, an ending which did not feature the death of Cordelia. Uh, this was Shakespeare's... Uh, or the death of Lear. Or, or indeed the death of Lear, exactly. So, it was a happy ending. Did you say who, who wrote the, the King? We don't know who wrote... Shakespeare no. know who wrote the King, who wrote L-E-I-R. <laughs> we don't. It's anonymous. And imagine that we're just theatergoers who love this story yeah. and went to the Globe or court in 1606 to see this wonderful story about a king reconciled with his youngest daughter, Cordella, and restored to his kingdom. And it's as if everybody at the end of the play is hit by a truck. You know, Shakespeare just not only writes the most apocalyptic ending imaginable, but he does so on the back of a story that had ended happily and frustrated expectations. That in itself must have been disconcerting in the extreme. The thing is that in the late 17th century, Yes, Nahum Tate restored no, no, that no. happy ending. He's, so think he's of it often, as... He's often sort of uh, pilloried for this, but in fact he was restoring yeah. the earlier, yes. earlier so version. Think right. of Shakespeare as a blip on a long... <laughs> and until the eight, early 19th century, as many of you know, uh, Tate's version, the happy ending, mm. was the one that was staged mm. in, in London uh, and uh, was one that people wanted. So... Uh, Shakespeare is yep. certainly not the Neil Simon of his day. He's not <laughs> giving you feel good. No, no. And the, the, other, the other thing that was very revolutionary about King Lear and, uh, from the dra dramaturgy point of view was the use of the fool, uh, the particular kind of uh, in, intrusion into the bleak sort of uh, drama and tragedy of this bantering, uh, strange, mercurial figure, a very... Um, uh, revolutionary sort of use of the of the fool, uh, who would not normally have intruded into, uh, or not yet intruded into dark tragedy in the way that Shakespeare <laughs> allows him to, or uh, makes him in this play. More interrogation. I'd just like to say that what I find remarkable when I read your book, and also when I read your book as well, is the degree at which it changes my conception of what Shakespeare was, really. 
you know, there's no sense of that bardolatry. He is a, somebody who collates and gathers documents either from the back of his mind or intentionally. I, I don't know whether he has it all laid out before him when he's picking up material, not just the source material, but all the bits and bobs that you, you gather, the, the bit where, I can't remember the bit exactly where he takes it from something James wrote about, uh, or you will be um, in front of people like a kind of monster or something. Mm -hmm. An actual quote from something that... Measure for measure, I think, is where he... Yeah, the one that lands in, in Macbeth. Yeah. Oh, right. Yes, yeah, the traitors coming to London. Described by James yeah. as yeah, it, it's astonishing. He's he's a different kind of Shakespeare. He's a kind of a collator. He's a kind of a civil servant Shakespeare. <laughs> uh, I think he's often quite also often, quite often a, a man with a notebook talking yeah. to someone. Yeah. Uh, I've been doing a bit of work on Shakespeare's Italian plays, his early Italian plays, and his knowledge where he got his knowledge of Italy from. Because I don't really buy the idea he went to Italy. And the more one looks at it, the more you think, well, what he's really doing, he, he, he's talking to people. He, he's asking them, you know, well, what's, that, what's it like down that street in Padua? Mm -hmm. um, Is this, do you think, a new version of Shakespeare that's coming up in the last 10 or 20 years? Or is, this, is, this, is there a you know, I, I, would, I would venture to say, it's a very good question, that um, because both Charles and I, and you can um, disagree with this, we stand in a kind of oblique relationship to the Shakespeare industry. And uh, not that we repudiate it, we read everything written, but we're unhappy with the stories that are told, in part because they're driven by academic demands, churn out a monograph every two years, or writing for 20 fellow specialists who care about one thing rather than another. And uh, that's never been the kind of writing I aspire to. And uh, the other problem with this is it doesn't really match a, uh, and in this country even more so, the set of expectations on academics to produce every three or four or five years for another review. You know, uh, 1599 took me 15 years, this took another 10. It's just slow and accretionary. You did do a wee bit in between the two. I did. Like you wrote I, well, you did those TV There's left-hand work and there's right-hand work. <laughs> um, my editor here, Julian Luce, wanted, uh, if I'm not mistaken, in yearly uh, offering 1600, 1601, <laughs> yeah. 1602. Well, according to the mathematical sort of pattern that you've established, Jim, we can be expecting um, Shapiro's uh, 1613 around uh, about 2025. I'll, I'll, interesting. Yeah, Shakespeare's tending his fruit trees by then, of course, but I'm sure you'll find some interesting. Uh, <laughs> it's just a labor-intensive process, and... Uh, had I published this five years or even three or two years ago, it would have fallen like the souffles that I tried to create. Uh, and there has to be uh, not just a critical mass of evidence, but an overabundance of evidence so that your willing suspension of disbelief is overcome. And uh, that is the hardest thing about writing these kinds of books that you have to create a world, believe in that world, and find enough evidence, uh, or have people share with you evidence, or find little bits and pieces. For, for me, the most exciting thing I, I did with this book was to trace plague in the autumn of 1606. Mm. Most academics simply say and recycle the claim, the theaters were closed. 
through the autumn of 1606. And yet, if you look, there's enough evidence, even published by scholars, to show that the theaters were not closed in November and December of 1606. And also, that plague reached Shakespeare's doorstep on Silver Street. And that just requires uh, thinking counterintuitively. But uh, it is an exhausting process. And I'm feeling right now, uh, again, Julian has asked me what's next. And I said, I'm, this pen is too heavy to pick up for the next six months. It's just a strain to try to do this. And uh, with this book in particular, I wasn't sure if I had failed and shamed myself or not when I turned it in. And I was relieved that it has had a better reception than uh, I could have hoped for. But it's just hard doing this stuff. It's hard graft, yes. So we, we, we're putting our cap around and the <laughs> any, any, any offerings. I'd, I'd just like to read a little bit of from uh, 1606 because it, it, it's just exactly what Jim was talking about there. You were touched on there about the plague. And uh, it's really about um, hard and soft evidence. And I, I like the way he just summed up that whole huge problem for these kind of books. You know, what are you going to put your weight on in terms of evidence? And does it, as you put your weight on it, suddenly shift and you're, you're lying flat, in the, flat on your face, as it were? He says, uh, what Shakespeare was feeling must have deeply informed what he wrote. But the problem is that we have no idea what he was feeling at any point during the quarter century that he was writing, other than by, in circular fashion, extrapolating this from his works. But we do know a great deal more about how a rodent-born visitation in 1606 altered the contours of Shakespeare's professional life. This is summing up a whole chapter worth of material that Jim has written about the plague's effect. Transformed and reinvigorated his playing company, hurt the competition, changed the composition of the audiences for whom he would write, and in turn the kinds of plays he could write, and enabled him to collaborate with talented musicians and playwrights, an outbreak of plague that may also have come close to killing him, and, as he has already said, uh, may well have killed Marie Mountjoy, his landlady, who died in October 1606. I, I just highlight that one passage out of many um, wonderful ones. It's probably not the most sort of uh, sparky of the passages of which there are many, but it just gives that idea, what do we trust? What, what, what are we looking for? Uh, in order to construct this, this uh, year or this life or this episode of Shakespeare, this very mysterious and elusive, particularly elusive character, Master Shakespeare. There, Jim says, well, you know, you can't really know what he was thinking and feeling just by reading the plays and saying, oh, that's what he thought about such and such. But you can know the plague mortality figures for the parish that he was living in, St. Olive's Silver Street. You can know a little bit about the people who were dying around him and about the effects it had on the society. In other words, if you look hard enough and if you look close enough and if you uh, focus closely in enough, you get to the kind of archival documentary, parish-based tax returns, uh, letters if you're lucky, documents which can actually form at least a, a, a sort of substratum on which you can build. And I think, you know, Jim has spoken eloquently just now about his exhaustion. Uh, you know, we all wear our fingers, fingernails back to the quick, uh, sort of scrabbling around for these bits of paper and these, these, these things that you can actually uh, touch. Because, of course, in the end, you're trying to make contact with someone who's disappeared 400 years ago and was anyway 
one of the most elusive and sort of. Uh, I, I always feel you know it's a bit the, the biographer of Shakespeare is, it's a foot in the door. You know the the intrusive. Uh, someone very kindly described my book as a, a keyhole biography. Mm. I, I thought they were meaning you know like keyhole surgery, terribly subtle and intricate. What they meant, I was the biographer was rather ungainly positioned down on his knees looking through the keyhole uh, into into Shakespeare's private life, uh, and you know one is doing that, but. Um, if, if you can find something specific, and I think detail is the, you know, the devil is in the detail, but the biographical truth of a distant figure is in the little bits of detail that you can recapture. The whole jigsaw is mostly empty space. Uh, you know, it's like those frescoes they restore, which have just got the pla blank plaster colour where they can't actually reinvent what's disappeared. But there are the tiny little bits where the colour is still fresh if you find them and where the, uh, uh, the, the, the face is still there or the hand is just a little bit of the hand is seen everyone's talking about a visual idea. Um, and, and those you fasten onto and with this wonderfully uh, specified focus that Jim has come up with, simple but very effective, one year, um, <laughs> You know, that does sort of help to sharpen in and to get that sort of perspective. The magnifying glass has something to look at. And uh, if, you, if you get, the closer you get, the more detail you can find, fragmentary though it is, that's where the sort of, some kind of reality can be touched across all those years. I think we have time for one more question. Uh, there's a gentleman in the front. Good. There's an obvious Jacobean context to uh, a Scottish play with an interest in demonology. There's an obvious Jacobean context to a play that begins with a division or a division of a kingdom uh, and features a very prominent fool, such as King James had in, I think his name was Archie. Archie, yeah. Um, I haven't read your book yet, but I'm very much looking forward to reading it. Do you think there's a retreat in Antigone Cleopatra or a very mm -hmm. oblique? Yes. Uh, a, a disengagement, if you like, from what's happening in the other two plays? I, I don't. And had H. Neville Davies, who's a wonderful scholar, uh, I wish he were here in the room, I don't see him, uh, had he finished his masterful book, which will probably never be completed, on uh, the Jacobean Antony and Cleopatra, uh, then that question wouldn't be asked. And the short and the long of it is, Anthony and Cleopatra might have struck contemporaries as more explicitly engaging uh, with Jacobean issues than either Lear or Macbeth. We tend to see it uh, uh, in the shadow of Liz Taylor and Richard Burton. <laughs> and uh, we don't think of James when he came to the throne declaring himself Octavius Caesar. We don't think of the visit, uh, the nightmare visit of the brother-in-law from hell of uh, Christian. King Christian IV who uh, could knock back 30 uh, uh, shots on any given night, who came and visited James this summer. And uh, uh, the drunken scenes in this play owe as much to that as anything else. But in, in truth, Shakespeare, to my mind, uh, and maybe we'll finish with this, probably wanted to write uh, and this will warm your heart, Julian. Julius Caesar, part two, uh, as soon as he had finished the success of Julius Caesar. And almost immediately, uh, that became impossible because of the politics of Elizabeth and Essex. You don't write a play about a martial general who might be in love with uh, a queen while Elizabeth's still sitting on the throne. 
And those of you who teach or read or see Julius Caesar know that the fight isn't over at the end of that play. It's just waiting for that sequel. And that sequel would have to wait seven years. And when Shakespeare did wheel around to writing that uh, at that point, and he's not the only one doing this. Decker and others are writing plays that are enormously nostalgic for Elizabeth. Everybody was tired of what they call the old woman when she finally died in 1603. And by 1606, they couldn't wait to have her back. And that play ends with that wonderful you know, speech about burying Antony and Cleopatra together. If you lived in 1606 and went by Westminster Abbey, uh, you would have known that King James coveted the spot in Henry VII's tomb where Elizabeth had been interred. And he went in there and did his own bit of political rewriting, had her dug up and dumped with her sister, half-sister Mary, in a little corner where all the dead-enders, the virgin, uh, even James's dead daughters were, were, were dumped. And he built a kind of parallel line. He's he himself reserved the spot in Henry VII's tomb for himself and created the most splendid line running through Mary, Queen of Scots. Uh, so you had that parallel in, in that extraordinary building. But when kings are rewriting history and burials matter in such a way and queens take on uh, a greater significance than they had since 1603, uh, at that moment uh, you would have felt the Jacobean presence and pressure of this play. Um, let me thank you uh, all for coming out, but mostly thank Charles for uh, a wonderful evening and conversation. So thank you very much. For thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. 